Just for the folks that are arriving right now, I want to welcome everybody to another fantastic meetup that we're having for a date on Kubernetes community. My name is Bart Farrell. As always, we want to remind you, get in our Slack, go to our webpage, dok.community. If you want to give a talk, let us know. We have talks now planned all the way through May. Um, we're doing talks in different languages. We had our first talk last week in uh, uh, Portuguese because our friend is in Brazil. We also had a meetup in the Netherlands um, last week, visually, virtually, sorry. Um, and we're starting to expand things into, into other countries. Sergio and I are both in Spain. We could be doing this in Spanish, but we're doing this in English. To introduce Sergio a little bit, Sergio is a Red Hat veteran. We were just talking, he's been there for seven years and has a great track record of working in tech before that. Um, I think it's quite interesting in terms of your profile because normally when I think of a salesperson, someone like you isn't exactly what comes to mind. Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But just to get started, Sergio, can you just give us some background about yourself, how you got started into tech, and then we can branch out into all these other areas of sales, philosophy, and plenty of other things that we can talk about. But how did you get started in tech? Uh, I'm a telco engineer, so it's it's by design. It's basically that I had to choose an engineering, and and I was thinking what to do because I loved computers, and I really like a lot of things in engineering. So I was really thinking, uh, what career path should I get? And actually, got into telco because I had a friend that was a telco engineer, and he told me just go there. You're never gonna regret it, and I like it. Um, I started designing satellites, so I done a few things in life. And then, yeah, can you can we stop right there? You designed satellites. <laughs> yeah, I, I started working in Alcatel Space, so I um, okay. yeah, only for six months. Uh, but the back end, I, I started working in Galileo when Galileo was being designed first. So it was <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I mean, what kind of a pickup line is it? Ah, I worked on satellites, built Galileo. You know, I don't have it. That is that in your LinkedIn? I don't think it is. I, it is. It is. But it's okay. I, I need to look. We need to look down. down <laughs> It's really down. It was a, a lot of years ago. It was, no, but it was fine. Something to tell my, my kids. It's a so good story. <laughs> See that satellites in space? Guess who built it? <laughs> yeah, cool. no, but I, I couldn't launch any of them. I, was, I left uh, early because it was, it was fine. I like it, but it was, um, I was a network engineer, and mm. that was really electric engineering. So it was, I was helping, but it was always behind. I was like, feeling not there and then i moved into r&d um, from r&d i worked there and you know when you're in r&d and and i did something really good and nobody knew what to do with it so um i just decided i needed to go out of r&d in spain because it was worthless unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately quite limited for people that aren't aware of the spanish r&d landscape uh there's a lot of room for improvement we'll put it that way yeah a lot so I, I, I moved into strategy and then somebody told me, well, you need to learn business. So I learned business. I, I did an MBA and in my MBA, they told me, well, you want to really know a company, you need to go into sales. So I went into pre-sales and it took me 12 years to get out. It's basically oh. that. And it was billing, um, billing for telcos. R&D for billing for telcos, then I did the strategy, then I moved into selling billing for telcos. And after that, I moved into Linux, and I'm from Linux, Red Hat was the perfect place to be. And then I had the opportunity to go back to designing things, R&D, that it was like, you know, when you go to, to your workplace 
and people. Uh, I remember one one colleague there. That one morning she looked at me and said, "Why are you smiling so much every morning? It really pissed me off. You come here singing, and it's so bad." And, I, <laughs> and you know, it took me twelve years to go back to that feeling of wow, oh, wow, I'm singing in the morning because I really like cells. I love cells, but I. Yeah, I don't sing in the mornings when I'm selling. I'm singing in the mornings when I'm doing this. So that's, it's a full journey, but it's... 12 years is a long time. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean to be doing anything. But with that in mind as well, too, I mean, uh, I, there's, there's plenty. Unfortunately, I only have an hour because I think I could be here three or four. But thinking about, okay, when you say you love sales, and like I said, for me, in my eyes, you don't fit the typical profile of someone who's in sales. However... That's a little bit of an unfair generalization. What is it that you like about sales? Customers. Customers. At the end, when you're in sales, um, so there's two misconceptions I normally find in two technical people that I had in the past. There's nothing perfect. Whatever you do is never going to be perfect. There's no perfect database. There's no perfect platform. There's no perfect technical solution for any problem. Kubernetes is not perfect. It's, it just has to be better than the others. And that's, that's one thing. So uh, when you're in sales, you actually are given some cards and you need to play with them. And many times um, your product is not as good as the product uh, behind you. There's like three or four different products in the opportunity, your product doesn't need to be the best in everything. It needs to be the best for the customer problem. So you really need to understand the customer problem to be able to basically make a speech that shows, well, you know, you don't need, you, you don't buy a Ferrari to go and buy bread. There's a lot of reasons to buy a Ferrari. I don't have any, but some, a lot of people do. One of them is not, yeah, I'm, I'm going to move to another play so i will get my furniture and move it in my ferrari that doesn't work so sometimes it's like people try to buy the ferrari of technology and it's like no you you need a van that's actually gonna be better it's not so sexy and yeah nobody's gonna be waiting for you when you come back but it's uh, but it's better for your problem and then it's finding the van for your problem that is really what is interesting and that's basically sales unless you are you have the perfect product that is so cheap that there's no alternative in the market. I never found that. You basically need to understand the customer. You need to talk to them. You need to follow through. And you need to have that relationship. And that's really good because now when you move into product management, you still have that feeling that I need the customer. I need to talk to them. It's not my idea. I'm trying to solve a problem. But I'm not the most intelligent person in the room because I'm I really need to understand something. Uh, my customer is going to have a problem and they know a lot because they do operate that every single day. And I'm, I'm just there for a couple of hours asking. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, plenty of things we could get from that there, but now we got to, let's shift it a little bit more to Kubernetes. What was the first time that you heard about Kubernetes? Uh, but, uh, I think OpenShift 3 was released uh, five years ago. It was really close to when Kubernetes was created. And I, um, 
in that time, Red Hat had um, an OpenShift 2 environment. So OpenShift 2 was not Kubernetes, was another technology. And just basically have a, a side project. I, I code some things in my free time and I had a product, well, a product, a, a project that was running in OpenShift 2. And then OpenShift 3 was released and we started hearing a lot about Kubernetes and it was in, in infants, it was really new. So I, I decided to go, I did some training, um, Red Hat training, of course, because we have it available and it's good. And then uh, I moved my application from OpenShift 2 to OpenShift 3, and then I moved it to OpenShift 4. So I've, I've been working a lot. And then five years ago, um, yeah, well, five years ago, I, I moved into the BU. So it was even earlier than that. I think it was six years ago. So five years ago, I moved into the BU to work in things related to Kubernetes. So I started to work with cloud forms that manage Kubernetes. Um, I was doing with partners, doing things with customers and partners, developing the community. I was partner manager, community manager, um, all together in one thing. It was good. And, and then I started to say there's something missing in Kubernetes that is cost management. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. That I love the technology. You can do a lot of things, but this is still not addressing the business problem. It's addressing the technical problem. And, mm -hmm. and so I fought for it for a couple of years until I could. And that's something we've heard before that, that very frequently there can be friction between engineering and sales about you know, the, the, like you said, that this is the, the most exciting technology we can offer, but is it really the technology that solves the customer's problem? Yeah. I really think that's, talking about money is really boring for engineers more than that. So mm -hmm. I always said we had, we have a, our open source project is called Koku, that is Japanese word for minimum wage, basically. It's an ancient Japanese word that it was used to say how much you need to pay in rice per person. It's okay. Something like that. So koku, uh, in, not in French, it's Japanese and it's koku, not koku. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's open source. Um, and I just was there because we, we, we had a gap. We needed to fill the gap. And I work hard to convince people and they like it. So now it's part of OpenShift. Okay. All right. Um, now, getting into this is that is you just mentioned that you know engineers frequently don't like to think about money, or maybe they just think yeah. it's not not their concern. So, with that in mind, what are some of the biggest mistakes um, that 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 people frequently make when starting out with these technologies? Is not anticipating the cost factor of just assuming it's going to come later. What what are the what what would you say are some some common mistakes that you find? So, I think the main mistake. In, when you go to the cloud, when you go to Kubernetes, is that you don't know what's going on. And, and what I find organization um, being afraid of is that suddenly everybody can create something. It's so easy, self-management, self it's amazing. But it also comes with a problem because companies were used to, uh, well, you go to purchase, you ask for something, uh, eight weeks later, you receive a box, you spend two, three weeks more installing it, and then you have a rack, and that's going to be there for three, five years, and everything is there. So I don't need to care. I'm, it, I'm just more managing capacity, so I don't run 
capacity, run out of capacity. You go to the cloud self-service, it's the opposite. Everything can be done and then you do it. And after the, after the moment, it's, well, you, you need to pay. It's like giving a credit card to your kids. Well, you need to pay. So, so you need to control what is go- happening. And it, that's always going to happen after the fact. So one of the things we find is that people are spending money. They don't know how. They don't know why. So if you want to get rid of that, the first thing it's well, control what you're having. You need to understand what you're having. You need to use the tools available to see the cost and understand really what is going on. And the second thing that is related to to that being able to do whatever you want is that in the past the limit was capacity management. So you you basically have a limitation on on, on capacity and people were used to, well, if I'm going to be limited on capacity, I'm going to be doing the biggest thing I can afford. So my CPU is going to have, well, yeah, my VM is going to have eight CPUs. Why? Because I can. Mm-hmm. In the cloud, that's killing. If uh, just every time you double the number of CPUs, you get double the price. And you get a lot of things you don't need. So it's, it's more about sizing your workloads appropriately and then reporting on them in a way that makes sense. I think with this in a way, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, is that from my experience of working in a couple of different international startups, um, one of the ways to attract top developers is to tell them you'll have complete control over the technologies you're using and basically it'll be kind of like a playground environment, of course, and that, but then that also means that costs can get completely out of control. Like, oh, I'm gonna spin up however many machines I want, I'm gonna deploy this on the weekend, I don't care. you know, how can you have this sort of balance between respecting people that can use these technologies in a very advanced way, but then also trying to, like you said, to have these elements of control. What I'd be curious to know is that, for example, when you learned, uh, when you were doing these trainings regarding Kubernetes some years ago, did you receive any information at that point about the cost management or just something that comes later? Because that's how I feel like cost management doesn't become a thing until it's a problem. And then yeah. Investors will say, "So why were we spending all this money in the first place? Now we have to hire a cost-saving person." Or, I mean, and that happens. And and I have friends that have been hired uh, specifically to focus on cost control. Um, how do you think that should work? I can, I can tell you a nice story. So we actually have a team of people. Whenever you go to Red Hat and you create a, a training, you're basically spinning up a complete full. A Kubernetes environment. Your OpenShift environment is a full Kubernetes environment you use to do your training. And that, well, that costs you a lot. So when we launched cost management the first time, uh, we got a now friend, uh, somebody in that organization that is doing training, came back and said, you know, I need help. Um, this month, our Amazon um, account has doubled. So and double, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of zeros after the double. So we, it has doubled, and we don't know why. We don't have anything to do, anything to know what is going on. So we connected the account into cost management, and they, and they try, and then they came back and said, you know what happened? OpenShift 4 was released, and there's so many people doing training on OpenShift 4 and Kubernetes and the new CoreOS version that we doubled the number of people doing training in a month. 
So what was going, what was happening is our business double. The only thing we could see is that our cost double. And when I told my manager, well, you know what happened? We have doubled the number of uh, trainings happening at the same time. Well, he could sleep because he was not sleeping for a couple of days because they, they were seeing the cost going up and they were not seeing the, the reason why. They could not understand why. And, and I heard somebody, some operational guy told me one time, whenever they put a VM in the cloud, it takes like 10 minutes to be attacked. Somebody will try to. I, yeah, I heard. I heard that as well. That yeah, that the the frequency with which these are being attacked. I think. Sorry to, to to cut this a little bit, but like in the same way that I think a lot of times for security for you know like major companies talking about security is a little bit uncomfortable because like yeah we've been hacked and we lost all this data and now we have to recover it. Nobody wants to, have to talk about that. I think also with cost management, it's difficult to find or optimization. It's difficult to find or and you can probably help me with this. But like great use cases, because what company wants to admit like, yeah, we were burning millions in additional expenses that we shouldn't have been incurring, but now we've solved it because, you know, then your investors are going to be like, what are you doing with my money? Um, do you think that it makes it difficult to make these cases more visible because it can be a bit embarrassing to have to admit that you were, that companies were overspending? No, I think that's um, one of the things. It's um, the journey to the cloud is, is still not in a place where people need to feel to justify the cost in that way. So the, we are seeing customers now that they're saying, I need to implement chargeback, showback, schemes. I need to know what's going on because I, I, I don't have anything in place and I'm running production or three, four, five environments and I don't know what's going on and I need to reflect that. But before that, it was like, yeah, this is a cool technology. You need to try it. You just install a cluster and you have it, and that's the objective. Nobody care about what happened afterwards. When you're running that in production a few months, then you start saying, well, I'm paying a lot. Why I am paying a lot? Where do I get my TCO? Where really I'm getting the business I should be receiving from all that money? And that's when they start thinking on cost management. So now that we are seeing an increase in production workloads, it's when people are coming and saying cost management is really, really important because I cannot go to production. I heard some customer last week saying, there's no way I can go to production without having cost management in place, chargeback, showback, whatever you want to call it. But if they couldn't report on it, they could not move into production. And they have several clusters. It's not that they are not um, confident that the technology will support it. It's, well, they cannot do a TCO, so they they cannot go to production. With this in mind, too, um, do you feel that, or what would you say the differences are that, that between OpenShift and plain Kubernetes? I mean, we know now that there are more and more tools related to cost management in Kubernetes, but what are the differences that you feel that OpenShift offers, we can say, out of the box? Just basically, Kubernetes is a project. It's an open source project, a very good project but it's a project. You need to package it. You need to make it a product. You need to support it. Nobody wants to discover that something is not working in their load balancer and waiting for the community to fix it. But also, you, there's some components in any Kubernetes deployment. doesn't matter if it's any of the cloud uh, Kubernetes or it's uh, on-prem Kubernetes. You need to have an opinionated 
version of it. Your network is not any option. It's one option. You need to have your the way to deploy your images. Where is your image storage? How are you managing your images? Uh, all that kind of things come with OpenShift. So it's Kubernetes. You still can use anything that Kubernetes uh, provides. And it's 100% Kubernetes. But at the same time, well, you have a solution for networking. You can use third-party tools. You can do others. But you have a solution. It's security is really, really strict in OpenShift. And in fact, uh, sometimes you cannot run your container because it's secure and you're trying to run it as root. That's out of the box. You can do that in Kubernetes, but you cannot do that in OpenShift. One of the reasons is because OpenShift is really thought by an environment that it's a, a company environment where you cannot afford those kind of things. You, you, you cannot afford anybody running as root anything in your server. That's crazy. So OpenShift has gone the length to work on that, provide the GUI, and also some developer tools that are really, really nice. And all of that is out of the box. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's the best way to make sure that it's scalable and it's secure without having to do it yourself. That's basically the thing. Mm-hmm. And and you think, it, and perhaps because of that, do you think that that's why, and I'm curious as well too, because of your, you have a lot of contact with customers. In terms of the customers that you most frequently work with, are they at enterprise level? Are we talking about, you know, companies that have thousands of employees, hundreds? You know, is is there, uh, we could say, uh, the right size or the, the right business case for, for a company that wants to get into OpenShift? Well, I think... It's for every size. We have customers every size. Normally, I, I don't know about the smaller one because when they call the product manager, mm. it's normally because it's a medium to big deal. Mm. So I'm, I have more contact with big customers than with the small ones. But it's, I've been in sales. I, I sold OpenShift. I, I know anybody can use it. It's also a matter of if it's fit for your use case. That's what we were discussing at the beginning with sales. Yeah. It's is your use case supported by OpenShift, by Kubernetes? Is really what you need? Uh, are, is your application scalable? Is going to be use and demand? Or are you going to get your big fat VM and try to run it on Kubernetes? Mm. That's the thing. And, and I will say that's CMV and all the alternatives that are now being put into Kubernetes and OpenShift to support virtualization are going to help. And I think... In the future, we will be talking a different thing. But right now, well, you really need to know and understand if your application is a good fit. And, and if not, just select another technology. It's Kubernetes is not a tool for any workload. Like OpenStack in the past was trying to achieve the same goal. And I think it basically didn't reach the same thing. And, and telcos are really happy with OpenStack, but it's... If you want to run containers in a production environment, scalable, with the just forgetting about many of the problems you will have if you deploy um, a VM or a server any other way, then OpenShift Kubernetes is your tool. But if you are trying to run your, I don't know, your your application that was built 20 years ago, I will I will try to assess before if that's the better use case for you. No, I think that's that's one of the one of the things we frequently ask people is you know like how do you 
in as well too, working in sales, you work with lots of different folks, I imagine different stakeholders, but perhaps people that aren't as in contact, you know, don't have as much contact, as frequent a contact with the, the tech side, with the technical side, to be able to put it in a language that they understand without, because sometimes when people will say like, look, I really, I just really don't need to hear about it. Just tell me, are we, is this gonna be cheaper? Is this gonna be cheaper? Am I gonna have problems in five years? Are there issues with maintenance? Are, you, are there issues with licensing? Am I dealing with similar kinds of problems? Or are we talking about new ones? And so I think, and this is what we talk about a lot in the community as well. What is the definition of a cloud native mentality? When is a company really ready for, for Kubernetes or in this case, OpenShift as well? And then as well too, further from that, and I'd be curious about your thoughts about this, selling the idea of running stateful workloads on Kubernetes as opposed to maintaining things statelessly. If you, as, you know, as, as someone who's worked in sales, if you have to present cases like that, how would you go about doing it? I was really trying to get around and uh, I don't know really. I think it's already happening. Oh, no, no, so it definitely people, is. People are yeah. already moving to the cloud. They're already doing it. They think it's, it's do we want to invest to make it in a way that makes sense. And I think there's the things for that, because at the end Kubernetes, it's a scheduler, it's it's a resource optimization thing that it will basically select the best place to put anything, can be a container or can be a VM. And, but the problem is basically the same. The, I think the main difference is the container will disappear possibly in a few seconds or minutes, while the VM is supposed to be there forever. But at the end, you have a resource scheduler that is going to understand what is going on and is going to move your workload to the right place. So if you already have that, um, you already have a control panel that is actually solving the problem that you have in the best way possible. Why not move in some other workloads and use that technology that is already there and it's moving so fast like Kubernetes is doing? Mm. All right. Next question. Talking about going back to this issue of cost savings, what are, you know, in your experience, you've worked with a lot of different companies in a lot of different environments. What are some of the key indicators that a company is heading towards a cost optimization or cost saving problem? What are the things if you're, if you have to diagnose a company, if you're looking and you're like, Ooh, I've seen this before and this is going to get ugly. What, what, what are the things that, that, that you've experienced there? So the first thing, um, if you talk to them, they don't normally they don't know how many accounts they have in the cloud. That's one thing. Yeah, we have something. Um, that's one problem. They they will have problems because if they allow anybody to do things, I've met customers with three hundred accounts in Amazon or one two thousand accounts in Amazon. Try to manage that. And so when you see them, there's not a hierarchy. They, they really don't know uh, what's going on. You know, there's, there's going to be a problem. And the, and the second thing is when you ask them how they organize things. Um, so one of the things, yeah, I have 20 BMs in account A. And you ask them, who is the owner of that? And they don't know. There's no way to know. They have some automation engine that is going to create BMs or resources or databases and they don't know what's going on so 
when I see that, it's like, wow, you have a problem. And then you talk to them and say, well, you know, it's naming. We we have one strategy, we have a name that is really complicated, and then it's working. And it's like, wow, are you using any other thing, any other way? Are you just tagging? Do you? That's, yeah, the tagging, that's something that was mentioned before. And once again, I think these are just things about visibility, control, ownership. Um, that's a huge thing. Anyway, continue. Sorry. Yeah. So I would say that's two things are there. And, and the second thing is, and I would say that's smaller because that's normally last really later. But if you go to... Um, you go to them and they think optimization it's a one shot thing mm. then you know they're going to have a problem because it, uh, optimization in the cloud it's a recurrent thing you need to do it every few weeks you know, well not every few weeks but at least every few months you need to see things there's a lot of waste and you will need to identify the waste uh, it's also what we were discussing before that you well if I can ask for a 16 gigabytes container why shouldn't i um and you need to start talking to those people and and influencing them so they realize it's better to have a two gigabytes workload that is gonna multiply by eight that having a 16 gigabytes that is going to be running at one percent so having a report on this is actually what you are using the reality of what you are using and everything else is waste it's a first thing to know if they're going to be improving their numbers. And when you do a couple of things like that, you get really fast into huge savings. I think this is a good point as well, too, that you said it's not just a one-off thing, that these are some kind of you know internal audits or things that need to be happening with a certain degree of frequency so that people can be aware of you know, yeah, are you, you know, is it 16 gigabytes? Could it be brought down to another size? You know, make a business case for that. You know, if, if, it, if we can't justify this, we shouldn't be doing it. And it's not that, once again, that someone's trying to, you know, ruin your day or control your life. It's just what makes the most sense for the business. At the end of the day, you know, most people are working in order to drive business goals forward in the vast majority of cases. Um, something with that as well, then, is that, so then who needs to be taking the initiative here? Is it CIO, CTO, uh, managers, developers themselves. How do you create a culture of, of awareness and, and visibility regarding this stuff? I really don't know. <laughs> if, if you had the secret, you would read the book. Yeah, yeah of yeah. course. Uh, I would love to have an answer for that. I think it's everybody. Mm. So, um, so this too. But things. I think that's a point, though, is that it shouldn't be only one person's responsibility. This needs to be divided and shared inside of organizations. Yeah, you need to have people that control what is going on. So you need to have finance involved, and it's really easy in the cloud. Just get out your company credit card and pay for something, and forget that you have a finance organization that need to account for that. So that's one thing. It's really easy to do that. The other thing is, it's also really easy to put some rules that are not applicable, it will hinder your innovation. So, and both sides are bad, are really bad. You want to be agile, you want to be able to do things in a good way, but also you want to be accountable. And it's really hard to, to balance both. So I would say everybody needs to be working together. And in a big organization, that's really, really, really complicated. So what yeah. tends to happen is that there's a group of people they're going to be working together to, well, basically try to decide what is the best way, the best equilibrium, and they're going to go around 
doing things. So I could tell you in in my organization, so there's there's a group of people we are working to to see the best way to improve the the what we do and what is the best path forward to reduce costs and improve efficiency. Uh, we still have rogue people because we are an open source project and we are too free sometimes. So I have a cluster running in with my credit card, I need to say, even if I'm part of the group that is saying I shouldn't. But I I just needed it and it was the easiest way of of doing this. But at the end, it's an effort of many people working together. And what ended up happening is that, well, we have parts of the organization and we want to extend that to the rest that, for instance, if you set up anything that is not labeled, any project in Kubernetes, any environment in Amazon, they will kill it. So there's a minimum setup of things. Um, that is, what is your name? Who are you? Um, what is your group? What project these things belongs to? If if you're not able to say that, they will kill your resource immediately. There's other groups that are more lenient and they will basically send you an email and say, hey, what are you doing? I'm, mm. um, you shouldn't be doing that. You're a bad boy. But it's, <laughs> but it's a full spectrum. And now we're working to set up what is the minimum lines that you need to make sure you cover. So there's always somebody responsible for your workload. And others are, yeah, we would be basically pushing for people to fix them but they are not so mandatory but again some of them are we don't see this we kill we kill it some of them are we send you an email and it's called you until yeah. you change but i mean there's a lot of things to be said about there about organizational culture but like you said some of the threats to establishing that culture are and you have an mba what am i going to tell you <laughs> traditional problems in any business of silos of lack of communication chain of command issues friction between you know different departments um so these things can can obviously cause a serious problem but i think at the end of the day it's about you know responsibility good governance accountability transparency knowing and that's the thing is it just like you said tagging um, and having ownership and things assigned to, to clear people. But the, going back then to if, you know, you're in, a, you're in the technical part of the technological part of a company and, and you want to convince upper management to go for, you know, Kubernetes or OpenShift and they'll start saying, oh, but the, you know, the costs are going to be completely out of control. How do you respond to that? So that's actually why we created cost management. So, so we had that, you know, when you go to the cloud, when you go to Kubernetes in the cloud, you're basically moving into two levels of abstraction. So you move from physical servers, everybody knows them, CapEx base, you buy it, you use it for three years, to OPEX base, you basically create whatever you want. And then you put the multi-tenancy scalability and everything that happened on top using Kubernetes, OpenShift. So just basically coming from yeah, I'm the CFO and I know this server was purchased by these people for this project and it's going to be there for three years to something happen. Um, my bill is three millions and I don't know why. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. So basically that's a problem that you need to work to solve. Mm. Um and so that's the thing is that in, in your mind, or, you know, from with this approach is that the conversation 
includes this from the very beginning. So is that we're anticipating the doubts, we're anticipating the resistance, and we already have something prepared for that. What we're doing is saying, well, you have that problem, you're going to have it. Whatever you do, this is the future. So there's, mm-hmm. the market is going there. You need to be prepared for that. So what we try to say is that, well, if you use OpenShift, we're going to give you enough inside OpenShift that you take back that information. So you no longer know what's going on. You have more information that you knew before. It's not that you know the machine is going there. You can know the percentage of CPU and memory that each one of your projects running on that physical server are using. You know how much is not being used. You can put a price tag. So you can define different prices for um, things happening in production and in development because they have different they use different subscription. They have different SLAs. You have different people managing uh, Kubernetes environment in production that you have that. And what we are trying to do, because this is a constant effort, it's making cost management the tool that allows you to do that. So when you're using OpenShift, you get cost management for free, and then you get, um, well, it's as a SaaS offering. So you can go to the SaaS, you can see your, all your clusters in one place, all your projects, you can assign prices to them. You can see what they are. Uh, right now, we're almost there. Um, I've seen it, but I don't know if you would see it, see it if you connect to it. We have some forecasting capabilities, so you can see the forecast of your usage mm. already. Um, it will basically get the, the cost from your cloud. Right now, we support Amazon and Azure. And, well, we are pending a PR to support Google. And, and you will see the distribution of your costs, any service costs, into your OpenShift cluster. So you have an instance recognition of how much your OpenShift is costing you because we identify the services using to run OpenShift. And then you have a distribution of costs within OpenShift to know that your project, as it's using 3% of your OpenShift cluster and a database, we get all that together and we present that in a nice format. So you can know that your project is costing you whatever, 10K. Yeah. And, and you can see that in real time, well, in real time, as soon as we get the files processed from the cloud, but it's every day, several times per day, you get an update on all of that information. And that gives you back some of the things you lose when you move into the cloud. All right. And once again, visibility, comfort, security, knowing, okay, in the next few months, this is where we're going to be at. If we could take it a little bit further into the, the data side of things, when we're talking about cost management, what are the things that are going to arise if we're talking about storage, if we're talking about operators, if uh, with these with these kinds of issues, what are, what are the kind of things that need to be kept in mind regarding that particular area and cost management or cost savings optimization? So I think it's not easy. Uh, you have two levels there. So the first one is your infrastructure. It's um, one of the things that happens is your infrastructure is going to mandate your cost at all the levels because all, many of the of the discounts you get are because you get all the cost together, not because you get some of the cost. So you need to manage the infrastructure as good as you can. And the second thing it's it's um, how do you identify what's going on in a way that allows you to, well, that's recurrent optimization we were talking. And the third thing, it's 
well, many of the applications we run are really thought for an old way of thinking. So you you basically need to start thinking on new schemas and how your application is really behaving. And I will give you an example. We in in we released a few weeks ago a new version of the operator for the cost management operator that gets the metrics from Prometheus and upload them to the cloud so we can do our magic. Uh, we were using a wonderful project that I'm also a project manager, that is operator metering. Um, that was really nice, but at the end we had to kill it because it was really good. It was beautiful, and but it was a big data analysis tool uh, querying Prometheus. So when we stole it, it was well, the last time I stole it was using five gigabytes of memory, two CPUs, just because the technology was there and it was easy to use. We used it. The new operator, last time I checked, and I need to see because they released a new version today, but the last time I checked was using 40 megabytes and 0.7 millicores. So it's 1,000 times less. So because we were thinking in a strange way, we basically were spending 1,000 more resources that we should. And now we are moving into the new operator, and that is going to impact everything we're doing and the way we're doing. But I think that's a mindset you need to have in the cloud. It's, is this really solving or is the easiest path to solve the problem? And perhaps if I'm not looking at the resources and I'm not looking at the cost of those resources, it's not so bad. It seems everything is infinite. So you, you just put it there. But if you think of that, having a five gigabyte um, memory consumption item in a Kubernetes cluster, you run that in any cloud, that's a lot of money per year. Yeah, doesn't matter where, like you said. Yeah, and particularly, and this is interesting too, because when we're thinking about the multi-cloud approach, is that which is becoming increasingly evident, increasingly used, which I think is very positive, is that sometimes the idea of like, well, you can shop around to different clouds and there may be some differences here in, in, in approach and style, look and feel, et cetera, but the cost thing is gonna be there no matter what. So I think people just need to understand that like, despite the level of complexity or how advanced the technology might be, you're gonna have to have that on an individual and on an organizational level. Really quickly, we got a question from the audience. Um, is the OpenShift uh, built-in monitoring as customizable as other monitoring services such as Prometheus? And how flexible is the alerting system? Two questions. But I would say, um, I think it's way, way similar to Prometheus because it's Prometheus. So out of the box, you get Prometheus installed. And um, right now, well, yeah, you have a lot of metrics in that Prometheus, uh, the one you need to run. There's also um, application metrics. So you can put application metrics. We, you need to be careful with Prometheus because Prometheus is a um, hungry beast. It needs a lot of resources and it's really good for some use cases, not for any use cases. It, uh, you look at the big data pipeline, it covers a few things really, really well. It doesn't cover the full spectrum of what you will be needed for reporting. So there was always there's always a need for more. But you have Prometheus, you can query it directly. It's already there. What we do in cost management is we basically we have some queries we know are important, CPU memory storage, PVCs, and all the labels associated to any pod running 
in your environment. So we basically query Prometheus and because Prometheus is short-lived, it's not going to be forever, it's not a time series database thought to be kept for years. We get that information, generate a report out of it, and that's what we upload to the cloud to, to be processed. So we are sure that you can recover what happened three months ago. That is always important. Um, if you go to Prometheus, I think in previous version was three days, so you have 72 hours of data. Now I think by default it's 14 days, but it's still not enough to get a full month report on how much your um, project was costing you in the last month, because the information will be basically deleted after a few weeks. And that's why you need to have the cost management operator, and that's what we put that information into the cloud and then we process it and show it to you. I have the full spectrum, all the longevity of a project and not, and not that there can be gaps missing along the way and then be kind of stuck wondering what's going on. Yeah. Good. Um, next question. Uh, let's see. How does OpenShift handle the usage of data on a Kubernetes cluster? And while thinking about cost optimization, how can we keep track of the data costs in an environment like this? Oh, say that again. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll say it a little bit slower. All right, so how does OpenShift handle the usage of data on a Kubernetes cluster? And while thinking about cost optimization, how can we keep track of the data costs in an environment like this? Well, I think you were just kind of talking about some of this with reporting, but anything to add on that? Um, I don't have an answer. No, I don't have a real answer for that, Right? really. Um, we try to solve it in a dirty way. So in our cost model, you can basically model your cost per gigabyte of uh, storage. So we can identify that, but that's not going to cover the full spectrum of the cost that you have in, in your Kubernetes. The other thing we do is we associate um, storage costs in the cloud to your OpenShift cluster. So if you have an RDS database, you can basically label it and we will be able to identify that as part of the cost of your project in OpenShift. But really, I don't have the right answer for this. We will, of course, integrate with more Red Hat projects. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, we intend to, to integrate with uh, OpenShift container storage. We want to include subscription data into cost management out of the box, out of the box. So there's going to be a, a lot of improvements. Uh, we have a long roadmap for that, but that's we haven't reached yet a moment where I can give you a real answer on that. That's okay. It's a good excuse for us to stay in touch, and you can let me know when you do. That's all right. Okay. That's good. <laughs> now we're we're kind of getting towards the end, and something that we talked about at the beginning for people that maybe arrived a little bit later is that Sergio, in his free time, and I don't know when that is, is studying philosophy. Um, no, go ahead, please tell us how did you how did you decide? Hey, 2021, I'm going to study philosophy. Uh, my wife. So we are both network engineers, telco engineers. Ah. We are both telco engineers. We are both telematics engineers, both of us. And, when and, I you, met met, her, and you met working on the Galileo project. No, <laughs> I, I, met, I met her in Vodafone. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I was in Vodafone. Uh, and yeah. so we went there and she was basically, I, uh, I had, for one year, I didn't study anything. And I couldn't do it anymore. I needed to go back to to study something. So 
um, so I spent one year learning English, French, and salsa <laughs> every day. And then I met my wife. Uh, was not my wife then, and she was doing um, uh, well a course in the university in in the UNED, the distant university in Spain, about Greek philosophy. And so I was looking for something to do, and I look at that, and and I look at what I was going to learn in in philosophy, and I like everything. So I, I just basically could do any new course in university because I like everything, physics, linguistic. I like reading, so I, I wanted to study Spanish. I wanted to study English. I wanted to study French. I wanted to study physics, mathematics. And then I saw philosophy, and it was like, well, actually, this is about about understanding the world. Yeah, so well, it's, that's a, it's a classic combination of physics and metaphysics, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't see it as being – so many people see this as being contradictory, and for me, it makes perfect sense. For, for me, it was like, you know, when you're an engineer, it's like you, you're giving your son place, and you have to build a castle with your son. And you're the best one building your sand castle with with your box of sand. And that's being an engineer. I have a problem. I, I need a solution. Actually, when you're studying philosophy, and, and it's, it was really hard at the beginning, it's actually it started to think, why there's a sand box? Why should I? And, and I started thinking, somebody decided to have a sand box. Somebody decided there was a, a, a scientist method. I'm sorry, but my philosophy, I always study in Spanish. So it's really That's okay, yeah, yeah, scientific method. No, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah. all that things suddenly becomes important. And you you have the fully opposite point of view. It's not anymore about, yeah, I understand the rules and I need to make the best of my rules. It's about why is there rules? Why are there these specific rules? Why do we have Kubernetes? Just go back to Kubernetes. Why do yeah. we have Kubernetes? Why are we trying to solve? Why Kubernetes? Because at the end, if you think of that, OpenStack was trying to solve exactly the same problem. And now we have Kubernetes. Why that kind of thing? That's something that philosophy gives you. It's a view of the world, but you're basically not analyzing how to use it, how to go with the flow. You're analyzing the flow. And I think that's really, really interesting. It hard for conversation with engineers. I I need to say, I remember one dinner that I was talking about Spanish Civil War with... Um, oh, that's a dangerous... Trump. That's a dangerous... I know, I know. It was really fun. It was really fun. But you could see the people, the other two people in the table just sleeping there. The, their eyes was glazing and they yeah, were looking didn't care at, at all. like, yeah. you are so crazy. Yeah. But it's fun, I would say. The thing is, going back to that as a philosophical question when we were at the beginning is the the idea of that, you know, open what OpenShift offers is that, you know, it's packaged. It's a product. Like there's, we would say in Spanish, que no tiene mucho misterio. No, that, that there's not like what you see is what you get. Like, you know, that there, there could be maybe because of lack of experience, some surprises. But then the other philosophical approach is that totally open, fully open source, that it is in a package. I think that's precisely, that is what some people find very, very attractive. Um, 
However, like you said, asking the question, why, 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 why is something we mentioned in our previous meetup. And at first I thought it was because our previous speaker has two young children who frequently <laughs> will probably ask why. <laughs> um, but I think that's, I think it's very good. And no matter what our decisions are to be questioning them, I think is a very healthy exercise. Um, yeah. Obviously there are limits. Um, there's a moment where it stops being, I think, productive, but, um, but as a basic exercise, to be doing that and also as well to push that further into thinking about use cases and business cases, you know, like why is the customer really going to care about this and what value is it providing? Um, I think that yeah. is healthy. I always think when I was, uh, when I started working in R and D, I will always use the beta version of whatever because I was R and D and that was a really nice feeling. Just having the last version of anything, installing your own Linux, was really nice. You learn a lot and you're always on the verge and it's really good for you. Now that I'm a product manager and I have responsibility, somebody talked to me and say, you're going to use the beta version. I would say, are you crazy? Because if, if something goes wrong, well, they, they, we will have a problem. And in the past, that was not needed. So it's just a matter of, do you want to be on the verge? You can afford to be on the verge mm. or you want to be in a, in well, close to that, Kubernetes is, is still quite new technology. And yes. it's, you're going ahead of the market in many ways. Mm -hmm. Do you want to do it safely or do you want to be fixing some driver that went wrong? That's, that's the thing, I think. And I, and I don't say one answer is good and the other is not. I, 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 the only thing I'm saying is in some cases, one answer is good. In some others, the other answer is better. And you just need to define what is the best solution there. If I look at, well, you look at Google and, or you look at Amazon, well, they have resources. They don't need to be safe because they, they, they can make it safe just putting people on it. Mm. That's completely different than if I'm a small company or if I really, my business is not running technology. Uh, so it can be that actually you are very good at doing that but you need to think that if you don't do that, those three people will be able to give you more into your CRM that is going to help you sell more. Or they are going to give you more in automation that is going to help you do things easier and put your workloads to, to market faster and better than if you just know a lot about Kubernetes. So True. I think it's a balance and I like both and both are nice. I'm here because I think if you run a production workload, this, the OpenShift road is the best one. Very, very good. Fantastic way to finish. Now, as we said in the very beginning, while we're talking, we always have our dear graphic recorder, Angel, who is creating a visual representation of the things we've been talking about in the last hour. Gorka, can you uh, share my screen when you get a chance? Um, I think this is quite nice. Uh, Sergio, I think you can see that for the rest of the folks out there too. Um, Angel is extremely creative. And I think uh, from the very beginning, once we started talking about the Galileo project, that kind of set the tone for everything else. Um, and anyway, I had a fantastic time talking with you, Sergio. As always, in all of our meetups, um, we will be making a donation inspired by Sergio to The Last Mile, which is an NGO that helps incarcerated individuals and formerly incarcerated individuals learn programming to increase their chances of getting better jobs when they're, when they're released. Um, so thank you very much for your generosity, Sergio. 
Oh, we're probably going to have to have you back. Um, uh, we've got philosophy. We've got space. We didn't even get to talk more about that. Um, I think we've got, I think we've got plenty more that we can talk about. And I think you're a great ambassador for, uh, for open shift. They're very, and red hat's very lucky to have you. Um, thank you. so thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. And we'll also probably have to have a conversation in Spanish because that's, it's always nice to hear different accents. Sergio's from, from Sevilla, from Seville, if we have to say it in English. Um, and they have, they have a very relaxing accent. Accent. Um, so anyway, wow. I don't have a civilian accent. I'm afraid to tell you. A little you. bit. A little I bit. Know, I'm, I'm afraid I lost it. Uh, oh, I, I guess. I guess. I guess because of living in the north of Spain, I, for me, it's 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 refreshing to hear something that's different. So anyway, you haven't been corrupted I'm happy too to much. Yeah, I okay. enjoy this. <laughs> uh, I will try to answer the couple of questions that are or uh, are there in in the questions. Yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll just bring it into Slack. I already t- I already told the I already told the okay. folks that we're asking. Yeah, that we'll just continue the conversation in Slack. Um, we'll we'll get on that right now or in the next couple of days. Um, so anyway, thanks again, Sergio. Much appreciated. Thank you. That was really, really, really happy to be here, uh, and I really enjoy it. Um, yeah, anything we can talk about anything. I also skate, so we can also talk about the skating. <laughs> okay. Don't worry about that. We will. (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much. Have a great day. Cheers. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Take care.